Our scripture this morning from Job comes from Job uh, chapter 19. And Job says, in response to his friend Bildad, I believe, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, that my heir remains with myself, if indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make, make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net upon me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. And he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. And he has stripped me my glory and taken the crown from my head. And he breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has pulled, he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. And his troops come on together and they have cast upon up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. And he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. And my relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy, and my breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones are strict. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. The word of the Lord. In his memoir, the Greek writer Nikos Kazantzakis shares a story about a summer he spent in a monastery as a young man. Kazan Zakis is most well known for his novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, which Martin Scorsese turned into um, a very controversial film. But when he was in the seminary, he um, had a number of conversations with an old monk. And one time he asked this monk, do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Mykairos? And the old monk replied, not any longer. My child, I have grown old now, and he has grown old with me. He does not have the strength. I wrestle with God. 
The book of Job starts with Satan, or the challenger, as a central character and the immediate cause of Job's suffering. But after the first two chapters um, of Job, Satan disappears completely from the book. Uh, Job never mentions Satan. Job's friends never mention Satan. God never mentions Satan or calls Satan back into his presence at the end. Even though we know that Satan is immediately responsible for Job's sufferings, Job does not see himself as wrestling with Satan. Job sees himself as wrestling with God. But Satan isn't just a fictional character um, that gets the plot moving in the book. Uh, In the scripture, Satan isn't just a metaphor for evil. Everywhere the Bible affirms the existence of, uh, of a personal spiritual evil being Satan, Paul tells us in Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a satanic, demonic reality that seeks to do us harm, and the scriptures affirm this throughout. Um, What that means is that behind all acts of wickedness and evil and injustice in the world, there stands this in reality. What it means is that evil can't be fully comprehended or even confronted on merely natural kind of grounds. Um, And why this is important is because it helps us understand the complexity and the spiritual nature of our struggle against evil in this world. And in Job's case, um, one part of his suffering is related to moral evil of men. It says that a group of Sabians and Chaldeans fell upon his property and slaughtered his servants. One part of his suffering is attributable to a natural disaster. A windstorm sweeps through and all of his children who are gathered for a feast uh, die when the roof collapses in upon them. One part of his suffering uh, is related to sickness. It says that uh, he is afflicted with boils and sores. Satan is the immediate spiritual cause that stands behind all of this suffering in one way or another. And yet Job does not see Satan as his real foe or enemy against whom he wrestles. Job sees God as his primary foe. And he says to his friends, God has put me in the wrong and closed his net upon me. And Job interprets this relentless suffering of his life as God's sort of full-scale assault upon his life. Again, uh, verses 8 through 12. I mean, he sort of builds this crescendo of God's attack upon him. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. And he breaks, down, uh, he breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has been pulled up like a tree. And he has kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as adversary. And his troops come together. They have cast their siege and ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Is Job correct? Is Job correct in seeing God as his enemy? 
Does he believe this deep down? He certainly feels it. He certainly, this is what it feels like to him. (laughs) And one of the things you see throughout the book is he's constantly wrestling with this question, is God for me or is God against me? Now, as outside readers and observers, we might point out to Job and his friends um, that they have failed to take account of Satan's role in all this, right? It wasn't God's idea, actually, to cause Job suffering. And it wasn't God's idea. Um, It wasn't actually God who actually causes the suffering. It's Satan. He's the one who comes up with the idea of suffering, and he's the one who actually does it. You know, one of the topics I'll take up in, in in a sermon or two here is the mysterious presence of evil within God's creation. The Bible is clear, and Job affirms this, that God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. God's creation is good. God did not create evil. And yet, mysteriously, evil exists. Evil exists in the world, even though God did not create it. So how did it show up? Why did it show up? Why does God permit it to show up, right? These are very important questions I hope to come back to. God does not dream up the plan for Job's suffering, and he does not execute the plan. But God, even though he is not directly responsible, he does permit it to happen. He does authorize it. Satan can do nothing without God's authority. He could have refused, right? He could have refused Satan's proposal, but he doesn't. He doesn't. You know, Job might not understand what goes on behind the scenes in heaven and this back and forth between Satan and God, but that wouldn't matter. He is still correct. Job is still correct to directly see God as his adversary, to direct all his complaints to God, to pick a fight with God. And this is right. At the end of the day, God is the only one who can intervene and help Job in the midst of his suffering. And so Job is right to pick a fight with God and to see God as his primary adversary. The book of Job is not at all interested (laughs) in giving us clear answers to why God permits Job to suffer. And by application, it is not interested in giving us clear and understandable answers to why God allows suffering into our lives. It's not interested in defending God's actions in categories that make sense to us. God's reasons are incomprehensible. His wisdom transcends our understanding as creatures. But the point of the book of Job is not simply to say God is incomprehensible, God is beyond understanding, you would never understand, so just be quiet and accept your suffering. That's not what Job is about. Job is, the purpose of Job is not to leave us in the dark, quite the opposite. The purpose of Job is to instruct us on what does it mean to trust God in the darkness. It's really the theme that we've been tracking through the book. What does it mean to trust God in the darkness? And part of trusting God in the darkness is learning to become wise in our suffering, to grow in wisdom through our suffering. Something that Tim Keller uh, has said in numerous contexts that has really always struck with me is he says that when real suffering comes into our life, not little things, right, a bad day or something like this, but really deep, profound suffering, when it comes into our life, 
It will either make you a better person or it will make you a worse person, but it will not leave you the same. It will either make you more wise, more humble, more patient, more loving, or it will tend to make you more brittle, more hardened, more fragile, more cynical, but it will not leave you the same. Suffering changes us. And the thing about suffering is it reveals us. It exposes us. You may have thought you were a patient person until you had children and you couldn't sleep, (laughs) right? You may have thought that you were a very loving and compassionate person until you found yourself in a really difficult and demanding relationship with a difficult person. You may have thought that you are a pretty well-adjusted and humble person until somebody at work gets recognition and you are passed over and you are not taken into account. You may have thought that you had a deep faith in God until God lets something into your life that is very bad. Suffering tests us. It reveals to us our character. What Job... um, What Job's friends cannot understand is that it's not because Job is a sinner that he suffers. It's because he's righteous that he suffers. It's not because he's a sinner, it's because he's righteous. Job is right to go directly to God with his suffering, to hold God responsible. Even though God is not um, what we might say as morally culpable in the sense that we can charge God with wrongdoing in the way that we might charge another human being with wrongdoing, Job is right to understand that his ultimate struggle is with God. It's not with natural disasters. It's with God. It's not with um, wicked, you know, evil men. It's with God. It's not with just sickness and unhealth in his body. It's with God. And precisely in making God the object of his complaints and of his anger, of his questions, of his wrestling, that he learns what it means to trust God in the darkness. So we think about trusting God in the darkness. We think, um, again, that it's, it's something like a serene, calm faith that we, we just sort of trust. Like, you know, like trusting God in the darkness like a child that's clinging to his parents, you know, his dad or his mom's chest, holding on in the midst of the darkness. But in fact, trusting God in the darkness oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes is more like wrestling with God. See, you can hold on to God like a child holds on to their parents, which is a a lovely image, but another way to hold on to God is to wrestle God. And when you're wrestling with God, what you're doing is you're you're clinging to God, but you won't let go of your opponent until they submit and yield. And sometimes this is the best that we can do. This is how we actually hold on to God, that actually wrestling with God trying to bend God, trying to make God yield is one of the ways that we trust him. That's the point of the parable that Jesus tells about the persistent widow, right? This is what she does, right? She is relentless. She will not give up. She just keeps fighting again and again until this this judge who, who doesn't care about, respect God or man, just relents. This is the point also in the story of Jacob when he wrestles the angel of the Lord through the night. Jacob cannot overpower the angel, 
but he refuses to let go. He will not let go until the angel blesses him. To wrestle with God is one of the ways we trust God in the darkness. Now, I want you to imagine, um, I want to contrast this with a secular approach to suffering. Imagine this. Imagine that Job does not believe in God. But all the terrible things happened to him that happened to him. But instead of making God the object of his struggle, Job instead focuses on the natural causes of his suffering. So when the Sabians and the Chaldeans plunder his property and kill his employees, he holds the police and the government responsible for not protecting his property and not protecting the life of his employees. And so he becomes a crusader, a moral crusader, against looting and pillaging. Tries to get legislation passed. Or imagine that in response to his children dying in the windstorm, he brings a lawsuit against the builder that built the house which the roof collapsed, and he holds the builder responsible for the death of his children. Or in the case of his own sores and sicknesses, right? He's got these boils and this intense, unrelenting pain, and that he holds the healthcare system responsible for not being able to help him manage and deal with his pain. This is, as modern people, how we tend to process our suffering. We just focus on the immediate causes of our suffering. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it wouldn't have been necessarily bad for Job to sort of address some of these issues. But this seems to miss a great deal. It feels like a shallow way a shallow way to respond to suffering because it fails to get at the deeper existential meaning that suffering raises in our lives. And most of the time, you know, there's nothing we can do to change the world. There's nothing we can do to reverse the suffering or the things that have been taken or that we've lost. And what it does as well is it tends to cause us to focus externally when we suffer on people or policies or, or specific problems and causes. And we don't really go in. And we don't really um, change as persons and reflect on the way the suffering has transformed who we are and our sense of ourselves. It's hard to draw meaning from your suffering when you just think about it in strictly natural terms, of the causes of it. But in wrestling with God, making God our adversary, we go to the one who is ultimately responsible, the only one who can make sense of it, the only one who actually can change or make any difference whatsoever. One of the fascinating things about uh, the book of Job, when you follow these back and forth conversations that Job has with his friends, <laughs> I say friends, I'm going to put friends in scare quotes here, is that there, there's an arc here you see of transformation of the man Job. Job is slowly being transformed and changing as the book moves along. In the beginning, you remember chapter 3 a couple weeks ago, we uh, encounter Job at his lowest point. He is in the place of utter despair, where he wishes that he never had been born and that he wants God to take his life to kill him. And he has completely surrendered to despair and shame and humiliation. 
But by the time we get here to chapter 19, um, what we see is a man has begun to fight back, in part because he's responding to his friends. Here we see Job as angry. And this anger is actually important. Anger is important. I, just, as a, I don't have this in my notes, but I just want to say this. You know, anger is a problem that we have to figure out how to manage, but sometimes you need to be angry. Because if you're not angry, you'll just let despair overcome you. You won't fight back. You'll just give up. Anger is one of the ways we, we don't give up, and, it, and it's something properly done that can help us have clarity about who we are. And this is especially important for Job as he confronts his friends because his friends have been falsely arguing that the reason that he is suffering is because he has sinned and that he is a sinner. And what his, their advice to him is, is that if he wants to get on to the business of healing and recovering, he needs to repent, he needs to humble himself, he needs to accept all this shame but Job knows that this is not right. This is not correct. And he refuses to accept their imposed shame. And he says, And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify, if you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. See, Job knows he's not without fault. He knows he's a sinner, but he also knows that the, the suffering that he's going through right now is not because of his sin. He knows that. He, know, he has clarity about what is his, what he is responsible for and guilty of, and what is not his. And this is precisely one of the hardest things when you're, when you're in the depths and darkness of suffering to have that sense of clarity. I think it is precisely because Job continues to wrestle with God directly that he's able to see through the erroneous advice of his friends. And this is key because it keeps him out of despair. Again, I wanna, want you to consider uh, for a moment what it would have been looked like if Job had actually agreed and accepted the assessment of his friends. What might that have looked like if he had gone their path? What it would have meant is that he accepted total blame and shame and humiliation. That he would have accepted that ultimately, maybe not directly, but ultimately he was responsible for the death of all his children. That he actually was not a man of righteousness and integrity. And that much of his life is built upon a lie <laughs> and self-deception. This would have been total humiliation for Job. But Job, as a man of deep faith, knows better. And he refuses the imposed shame of his friends because their advice is diabolical. It is satanic. Now, I mentioned that Satan disappears in chapter 2 and that we don't, you know, see him anywhere. But invisibly present is Satan through the voices of Job's friends who are accusers. Satan is an accuser. And as the accuser, he wants Job to question everything about himself, everything about his relationship with God. And that's what his friends do. They accuse him. Instead of building Job up in the faith, in, in the faith in his God, what they do is they promote false and shallow view of God that makes it even harder for him 
And in many ways, Job's anger with God is fueled by his friend's distorted pictures of God. Because there's a way in which he's like, well, if this is who God is, then I'm against God. See, most of us are fortunate enough not to have friends as bad as Job, right? (laughs) Gosh, can you imagine? Unfortunately, these friends live in our heads. Unfortunately, we become our own accusers with all the kind of negative self-talk and self-questioning and doubt. We're always tempted in the midst of suffering, deep suffering, to listen to these voices of these accusers. And they say things like, this is what you deserve. You have something in your life that is a reason for your suffering, and it's on you. You are worthless. You deserve this humiliation. You need to just accept this, embrace it, and give up. See, this is the essence of despair. (laughs) But it is precisely here that, like Job, you have to fight back. Again, Job did not deny that he was a sinner, and he was not opposed to the idea that some of the suffering in his life could be related to things he's done wrong, and we should always be open to that. But that's not this. Job refuses to accept the imposed shame that his friends believe he deserves. And for us, it's important for us to not to fight back against self-imposed shame, because we do this all the time. We impose shame upon ourselves with the same hope that Job's friends held out, which if you do this, if you accept total and complete shame and humiliation, you will be able to get out of your suffering. But this is a lie. Friends, there's a big difference between being humbled and being humiliated. There's a big difference between being humbled and being humiliated. Suffering, rightly processed, does humble us. It reminds us that we are creatures. And to be humble is to have a proper view of oneself. And the fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes we have inflated grandiose, false views of ourselves, and letting go of these false selves is painful. And sometimes the only way it happens is when that false self has been shattered in the midst of suffering. But there is a big difference between being humbled and being humiliated, because humiliation aims towards the destruction and the annihilation of the self. Humiliation is a spiritual imposter to humility. See, in suffering, God wants to humble us, but Satan wants to humiliate us. In suffering, God wants to lead you to your true self, but Satan wants to lead you to the destruction of yourself. That's why in the midst of suffering, the voices, the voices are so strong and deafening that are inside of us, whispering and accusing and shame-inducing. And that's what despair is, friends. Despair is a form of self-humiliation. That's what despair is. Despair is a form of self-humiliation. It is to say that I 
have nothing worth living for, that I am nothing, that God cannot do anything to save me or help me. And so just let me die. Friends, this is the voice of the evil one. And it is a lie. You have to fight back. Because it's precisely in fighting back that you have dignity as a human being and as a creature of God. This morning, if you are in the darkness, suffering, don't stop fighting. Don't give up in despair. Don't don't embrace the self-imposed shame and humiliation. You have to kick and punch and bite whatever you need to do to keep going. Even when you feel like you're losing (laughs) in your match, if you're wrestling, you're still holding on to God, right? Remember that, right? Part of trusting God is just wrestling. It's holding on to him, even if it's not, again, the, the, the holding on like a child to a parent, but it's just like holding on like somebody who just wants to bend somebody to his will or her will. So when we continue to fight, even when we're losing, it means you're still alive. You still have dignity. One of the hardest things about suffering is the way that it leads us into a crisis of the self. Most suffering never starts as a full assault or attack on the self or who you are, but if it's severe enough, that's always where it will go. We question everything about ourselves. Who am I? What am I about? And this is, this is absolutely what happens with Job. Is he a righteous man? Does he have integrity? Is his faith real or is it a sham? Should he accept the shame and the humiliation of his friends? And as Job wrestles with God and he wrestles with his friends, he's also wrestling with himself. And this is always the case. When you really, see, when you really wrestle with God, you are wrestling with yourself at the deepest, most sort of intimate place that you can go. Job fights for his own survival, and he fights back, and he continues to press God for his vindication, but he realizes he he is ultimately unable to defend himself, to win this match. And he comes to a point of, of near despair, and he realizes that he needs help. He needs help. And there's this incredible moment in, in our chapter where it's the sort of like, some I've heard it called, it's like a leap of hope, <laughs> right? Like where he goes from the cliff of despair and he just like jumps over the abyss onto the other side and hope that's somewhat prophetic in the end of our chapter, starting in verse 23, he says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. For I know that my Redeemer lives. How does he know this? How does he know that his Redeemer lives? Uh, Commentators in Job 
have no consensus about who this Redeemer is. There's no agreement. Um, is it another person? Perhaps another friend that didn't show up. Is it God? Unlikely that it's God, because Job sees this as his primary enemy. So who is this Redeemer? And the word Redeemer in the Hebrew is the word goel, sometimes translated kinsman redeemer. We associate this with the figure of Boaz in the book of Ruth. The redeemer uh, served very specific roles in Hebrew society. A redeemer was an advocate, somebody that could defend a person legally. A redeemer was an avenger, someone that would pursue justice if you were murdered. A redeemer was also somebody who could rescue you from financial ruin, just like Boaz does to Ruth and Naomi. We don't know who this redeemer might have been but in the depths of Job's suffering, Job longs for a redeemer. <laughs> and if anything, you just say, who is this redeemer? It's, it's what his heart longs for. It's what he desires most because it's the thing that he imagines could actually help him in the midst of his suffering. One day, Job's dream for a redeemer would be fulfilled. Not just for him, but for all who suffer. And this Redeemer would come, and this Redeemer would stand upon the earth, and this Redeemer would come to meet us in the darkness. This Redeemer would be an advocate in heaven, unlike Satan, who accuses us and speaks falsehoods against us in God's presence. This Redeemer would actually speak words of grace and truth in God's presence on our behalf. This Redeemer would fight for us and alongside of us and within us. And this Redeemer would speak words of comfort and hope to us. And he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he says later, when a woman is giving birth and she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. We know that our Redeemer lives, and he has come to stand upon the earth, and he has overcome the world, and his name is Jesus, and someday you shall see him for yourself. Your eyes shall behold him and not another. Amen. Lord, we know that our Redeemer lives, and that he has come in the person of Jesus, and that he has rescued us. But Lord, we know that we do not have to wait to the end of our lives in order to benefit from his redemption, that even now, through your Spirit, he comforts us and strengthens us. Lord, I do pray this morning for any who are suffering in the darkness, any who are tempted by despair, that they would not give up, but they would fight, that they would hold on to you and wrestle, and to know, Lord, that uh, even when we aren't able to keep holding on to you, you do not stop holding on to us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.